and welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. And so, Kelsey, this is a bit of a weird week in the world. (laughs) It is a bit of a weird week in the world. So right now, if you're listening to this, you know, in the future, this is kind of fairly in the beginning of the COVID-19 stuff, shall we say? And yeah, yeah. So a lot of things are changing with our our government recommendations. And yeah, so Kelsey, what's your life like right now? (laughs) Well, my end of last week was very hectic because all this was kind of coming up. And then it was like the schools started shutting down. And then it was, you know, they sent out a letter at work being like, we're staying open. Yes, we're cleaning more. Yes, we're taking precautions. And then literally the next day, they sent out a notice being like, we're closed as of Sunday. Yeah, my work was kind of the same. They were like, oh, we don't really know. It seems like we should close. And then thankfully, they did close because I'm at a tech company and we can be remote. 100%. 100%. So I yeah. was I was very glad I had, I had gone in there and, and made my case as well saying, you know, that's the we have the opportunity to do this thing. So we should be part of the people really taking the stand and, and doing it and setting the example. So uh, I have been working from home this week. And it's been it's been really nice. I, I'm lucky that I can yeah. do my job 100% remotely. I know I'm one of the lucky ones, and I've been taking advantage of just having that opportunity. But I know that it's not the same for everyone. So uh, we just wanted to tell you all that we hope you're all staying safe and healthy and that you're doing okay out there. And we hope that this all kind of resolves happily and soon, although there's going to be a lot of difficult times ahead, I believe. Yes, there are. And while my work is closed, I still am going into work because don't worry, guys, the horses are being taken care of. (laughs) I am considered essential staff and therefore need to come in. However, my hours have been reduced quite a lot. And my coworker and I are going in at separate times. So we don't have to like, touch the same things. Yeah. So, but it it is actually nice, you know. I there's a lot of things I've been wanting to do at home, and it's nice to just take a moment to to breathe a little bit. Like it is, I can't stop myself from looking at the news, though. I just feel horribly, and I want there to be an end in sight. And I know there's not really an end. And I, uh, yeah, it's hard to tear yourself away from the news. Well, I think, though, that's why we do what we do here, because here is a little slice of happily ever after for your day. And so that is definitely what we're here to talk about. But before we jump into the book that we read this week, Kelsey, I have a question for you, kind of in the same vein. All right, lay it on me. So in these trying times, Kelsey, have you had a book that you've reread lately, like a comfort reread that's been your favorite Yes. So I was inspired by one of our earlier podcasts this year where we read A Lord Dashwood Missed Out. Mm. And I just was reminded how wonderful the Spindle Cove series was. And I took a moment to reread a few of them. And I will say Minerva and Colin's book is still one of my favorites. (laughs) You guys said I needed to read that one. And I know I've read it, but I I need to reread it. I really, I don't remember it. (laughs) It was just like, it's fun and it's silly. And how about you? So I haven't done a lot of rereading like recently. I haven't, I've been catching up on some podcast chores and editing things a little bit. 
So I haven't treated myself to rereads, but I was thinking about the things that we've read so far this year and what's my favorite reread. And like, if I could go back and reread one of those books today, what would it be? And that book is, (laughs) it's The Earl I Ruined. God, I love that book. (laughs) I love it so much. And I still can't believe you didn't like it. So (laughs) that's okay. That's a-okay. Yeah, but that's in our past. And today we are talking about To Sir Philip with Love by Julia Quinn. Which is also a reread. It is a reread, but I I put it out of the running because, you know, we have to get through the synopsis before we talk about our thoughts. So exactly. We do have a trigger warning today. Today's book does deal with topics of suicide, child abuse, depression, and postpartum depression. So if those are difficult topics for you, we just wanted to give you a warning. But as always, our story does end with a very happily ever after. Yes. And so this week, we've pulled some fun facts about this book from Julia Quinn. And our first fact is, many of my books have a working title, which never sees the light of day. But To Sir Philip with Love had two. The first was For Eloise, Wherever I May Find Her, inspired by the Simon and Garfunkel song For Emily, Wherever I May Find Her, which I think is one of the most romantic songs ever written. Naturally, the S&G song is included on my soundtrack for this book. The second working title was The Importance of Being Eloise. Also a great title. but Julia, Fantastic title. Yeah. And so I don't know if everybody knows this because it is kind of a bit of a history fact, right? But the title of this book, To Sir Philip with Love, is inspired by a different song, which was also a movie and a book. It's To Sir with Love. Yes, and To Sir With Love is a 1967 British drama film that deals with social and racial issues in an inner city school. It stars Sidney Poitier and features Christian Roberts, Judy Geeson, Susie Kendall, and singer Lulu making her film debut. The film's title song, To Sir With Love, sung by Lulu, reached number one on the U.S. pop charts for five weeks in the autumn of 1967 and ultimately was Billboard magazine's number one pop single for that year. The movie ranked number 27 on Entertainment Weekly's list of the 50 best high school movies. Very cool. And I just have to say, To Sir With Love is like one of my favorite songs. So like, I just, I wonder. Which is funny. I don't actually know, which is surprising to me. Oh, well, maybe I'll stick a little snippet of it at the end if y'all stick around for that. (laughs) All right. And so for our history facts this week, I did want to talk about postpartum depression because it's kind of an important part of our book. Postpartum depression is a type of mood disorder which is associated with childbirth and actually can affect both sexes. Symptoms may include extreme sadness, low energy, anxiety, crying episodes, irritability, and changes in sleeping or eating patterns. Onset is typically between one week and one month following childbirth. Now, while the exact cause of postpartum depression is unclear, the cause is believed to be a combination of physical, emotional, genetic, and social factors. These may include factors such as hormonal changes and sleep deprivation. Risk factors include prior episodes of postpartum depression, bipolar disorder, a family history of depression, psychological stress, complications of childbirth, lack of support, or a drug use disorder. And diagnosis is based on a person's symptoms. 
And today, treatment for postpartum depression can include counseling and or medications. And postpartum depression affects roughly 15% of women after childbirth, which is a large number, and I think that that's important to note. And moreover, it's also estimated to affect between 1% and 26% of new fathers. Less data is accurately taken on that, but uh, it can affect fathers too. And then let's talk about the past, right? (laughs) That's the present. That's what we know and that's what we understand today. But of course, in the past, depression was wildly misunderstood. And in the Regency era, postpartum depression as a thing had not been identified. And so I found some sources that said that postpartum depression was first identified in 1850, but all of those sources did not cite a source and they used the exact same sentence. So mm-hmm. I was a bit suspicious of that, even though like I found a book, I was like, I was really diving deep into this. And I, <laughs> I was, I, I just, I cannot find anything that actually says who, you know, identified it. And so I just don't feel quite comfortable with that number. Therefore, I want to discuss what it was like for those with depression in general during these times. So there's more information on how the Victorians approached depression. So I'm mostly talking about the Victorian era today rather than the Regency. And the Victorians called it melancholy or melancholia, and they classified the symptoms differently than we do now. They classified a range of symptoms from mild to severe, which included things like temporary bouts of sadness or low spirits, and longer, more extreme episodes that were characterized by insomnia, lack of appetite, and suicidal thoughts. And while doctors in the past generally agreed upon many of the symptoms, they didn't agree on what caused melancholy. In In fact, one doctor of the Victorian era, a Dr. Beach, uh, defined melancholy as, quote, patient afflicted with melancholy shunned society and courted solitude, was fearful and low-spirited and indulged in a, quote, certain train of thoughts upon one subject. The subject was generally that which was the cause of his misfortune. And then later, a doctor Thomas Harrison Yeoman agreed with him in an 1850 article writing that, quote, the leading characteristics of melancholy are a love of solitude, gloom, fear, suspicion, and taciturny. And then 20 years later, different classifications of melancholy began to spring up. So one doctor, a Dr. Blanford, gave melancholy two classes, either acute or subacute, while our Dr. Yeoman from before went a bit further to divide into four subtypes. Quote, first, gloomy melancholy, in which the patient is silent, sad, and constantly endeavoring to seclude himself from observation. Second, restless melancholy, in which the patient is roving, restless, and evinces a constant desire to change his abode. Third, mischievous melancholy, marked by sullenness, moroseness, spite, and occasionally terminating in suicide or the injury of others. Fourth, self-complacent melancholy, wherein the patient is self-satisfied and affable, occasionally rejoicing in a visionary superiority of rank, station, or wealth. Whew, so, (laughs) interesting. interesting. Yeah, that's what I think too. But, so, like, what about treatments for depression back then? Well, I think we've all read a historical romance with an asylum in it, haven't we? (laughs) I think so. And that was a very real possibility for many people with depression back then. then. 
And of course, there were good and bad facilities and terrible treatments like ice baths and worse and decent treatments like recommending time outdoors. Some doctors of the time even advised their melancholy patients to drink alcohol or to take morphia, or even if they were single, as we've read many times, get married and start a family. <laughs> That'll solve all your problems. Absolutely. Uh, and the previously mentioned Dr. Blanford recommended a diet which featured alcohol at almost every meal, followed by a dose of chloral or morphia at night to help his patients sleep. And I mean, Helpful. I mean, <laughs> I enjoy a glass of wine, but you know, there are other issues with that. Alcohol is a depressive. If you're depressed, it's not going to make you feel better long term. Certainly not. So the most interesting thing I think is that the Victorian era did bring around some revolutionary thoughts on melancholy, including those of a Dr. Flint who recommended practicing good hygiene and increasing outdoor activity. He also believed that alcohol and opiates should never be given as treatment for melancholy. He further claimed that the treatment of melancholy was, quote, chiefly mental and that only by engaging the, quote, intellectual and moral faculties could the patient begin to recover. In addition to treating one's mind, he also recommended invigorating the body, stating, hygienic measures are often of much benefit. Abundant exercise in the open air with agreeable mental occupations, as in hunting, fishing, boating, etc., and traveling, are not infrequently curative. Which is pretty revolutionary for the time, if you think about it. It was. I love when you get some doctors who are like... Obviously, we know we're doing bad things. Then you get the one guy that's like, I think you should do this. And everyone's like, you're crazy. And then, oh, wait, it's similar to like, you know, it's more in line with what we would want to recommend now. Yeah, it's I mean, it's just wild. So, of course, um, as usual with history and especially with women's health through history, things did not get better for a long time. Even in the 1950s, electroshock therapy was often recommended for treatment of a, quote, neurotic woman and or occasionally they were prescribed Valium. So even then, women did not recognize their symptoms as those of depression, nor did they discuss their thoughts and fears regarding their symptoms. And their silence was most likely out of shame that others would think they were neurotic or insane. And while there is still a lot of stigma around mental health today, we have at the very least identified that. And we are, as a society, I believe, making strides to normalize mental health as we should. I also have the experience of having a loved one who has had postpartum depression. And while I don't want to go into details, I just know firsthand how serious and traumatic and devastating it can be. So I just want to encourage all of our listeners that if you suspect someone you know and love has postpartum depression or depression or any other mental health issue, I recommend you encourage them very gently to speak with their doctor because in today's world, luckily, there is help available. Yes. Always worth consulting a doctor about. Yes. And I also want to say thanks to Mimi Matthews today because we cited her article, A Cure for Melancholy, Victorian Medical Advice on Treating Depression heavily for our history facts. And we will be sure to link to that in the show notes because her article contains even more fascinating information and you guys should definitely check it out. Awesome. Whew. Well, now after that long intro. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about our tropes for today. So our tropes for today are a marriage of convenience, widower with wild children needing to be tamed, <laughs> a man not knowing how to be vulnerable, 
and a long-distance courtship. And our main characters today are Sir Philip Crane and Eloise Bridgerton. Yay, Eloise! (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, shall we get into it? We shall. So our prologue starts with Sir Philip Crane in his greenhouse on the first sunny day in weeks, thinking it would be a good idea to get his twins out of the house. Being a father has not really been his forte, but he's trying, and he knows they enjoy nature walks learning about plants, since plants are kind of his thing. He's a botanist, after all. And he looks up and catches a glimpse of red and realizes it's his wife, Marina, who's out in the woods. She has not left the house, let alone her room, in a very long time, but maybe she'd like to join him and the children on this nature walk. So he sets out to ask her if she'd like to join him. And he starts after her and realizes that she's headed towards the lake. And he keeps following and realizes that Marina hasn't stopped at the lake. She has, in fact, walked into it until she drops off the lake bottom edge, sinking towards the bottom. Luckily, Philip was able to swim out and get to her in time and able to clear the water from her lungs. But this is only a short reprieve as she dies three days later from fever. And as he breaks the news to the children, his daughter Amanda asks, Is she happy now? Philip says he thinks so. And his son Oliver gives this a think and then says, quote, I hope she's happy, Oliver finally said, his voice more resolute than his expression. Maybe she won't cry anymore. And a couple weeks later, Philip receives a letter of condolence from Eloise Bridgerton, a distant cousin of his wife. After reading the letter, one of the very few he received, since Marina rarely had left her bedchamber in the last eight years, Philip decided it needed a reply. It is only polite, and that is how the correspondence to Eloise Bridgerton starts and continues for a year. Yes, and here we are a year later with Eloise on her way to finally meet Sir Philip Crane. In his last letter, he proposed she come for a visit and see if they might be suited to marriage, which at the time Eloise was very surprised about and was so shocked that she actually never responded to the letter. However, after Penelope, her best friend, and her brother Colin married, Eloise had begun to rethink her life as a spinster. It no longer seemed fun when it was just her and not her and Penelope as they had planned. It's not that she begrudged Penelope her happiness, it's just she never thought her friend would marry, and now the proposal from Sir Philip is the only one on the table for Eloise. She's turned down six in total, so now no one is ready to propose again. Part of the reason she never felt comfortable accepting any of the proposals was that she was looking for the kind of love that her older siblings had. Even Francesca, who had tragically been widowed shortly after her marriage, had been in love with her husband. The correspondence with Sir Philip started innocently enough. Eloise is a dedicated correspondent, loving to send letters and receive them in return. So it was very normal for her to send a letter of condolence for a distant cousin, even if they had never been close. However, his reply, containing a pressed flower, stirred her heart a little bit, so she had sent a reply to that. And that being said, her family has no idea she has been corresponding with him. Quote, Sir Philip was, in his own strange way, hers, the one thing she'd never had to share with anyone. His letters were bundled and tied with a purple ribbon, hidden at the bottom of her middle desk drawer, tucked underneath the piles of stationery she used for her many letters. He was her secret. Hers. 
Sir Philip is currently unaware that Eloise is on her way. In fact, he's sure he scared her away with his proposal of sorts. She never responded over the last month, which has not been like her. So I guess he's got to figure out another way to get a mother for his children, as he has no idea how to parent. Then... The butler interrupts his internal dialogue to announce that there is a caller, who is in fact a lady. And having no idea who this might be, Philip goes to see the caller and is stopped in his tracks by the young, pretty woman with the, quote, most achingly beautiful gray eyes he'd ever seen. He could drown in those eyes. And Philip did not, as one might imagine, ever think the word drown lightly. Philip is stunned for a moment, and then the mysterious woman begins to speak, and continue without a moment's pause, <laughs> apologizing for not letting know she was coming, but the note would probably have reached him after her. Quote, this had clearly gone on for far too long with no sign in truth that it would ever end. If he allowed her to speak for one moment longer, he was quite certain he would suffer an inner ear imbalance, or perhaps she would swoon from the lack of breath and hit her head on the floor. Either way, one of them would be injured and in debilitating pain. So finally, he gets out the one question he currently has, which is, who are you? And after a moment, she says, Eloise Bridgerton, of course. And then we have a cute exchange as she refers to her earlier dialogue to which Sir Philip says, I didn't understand a word you said. Weren't you listening? I tried. <laughs> Eloise biggest. Let's not say flaw. We'll say eccentricity is her ability to talk a lot. Very quickly. I get it. I, too, suffer from the same <laughs> affliction, Eloise. Oh, I have also had mo my moments. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And next we have a stilted conversation in the parlor until it is interrupted by a scream. Ah, the twins. And Eloise is a bit shocked because nowhere in a year of correspondence did Sir Philip ever mention children. Don't worry. She expressed her displeasure. <laughs> Oh, yes. Eloise can talk a lot, and she is also not afraid of words to, you know, she doesn't mince situations at all. No. She tells you straight up. No, no. And next, uh, the next thing we know, Philip does a poor parenting job, not in a bad way, just in a way that shows Eloise that his children run the house. And the twins are not thrilled to see Eloise. They, in fact, express their displeasure by saying they never wanted to have a guest. They don't need a guest. She should leave. And the twins get sent back to their room after a forced apology to Eloise. And after the awkward exchange, Philip leaves Eloise to her breakfast and to rest, and he runs off to his greenhouse to be with his plants and peace and quiet. After Sir Philip flees, Eloise does indeed go change and then wanders around the house because she's not one to sit still. And in fact, he said she needed breakfast and rest. Uh, she did not say that. Mm -hmm. And uh, she then has another run-in with Amanda and Oliver with them continuing their hostile attitudes. However, Eloise is not too worried. She has seven brothers and sisters, after all. So Sir Philip comes home for lunch after talking himself into it and shares a meal with Eloise, coming to the conclusion, quote, But wooing her wasn't going to be as easy as he'd anticipated. It was clear to him that he needed her more than the other way around. He'd been counting on her being a desperate spinster, which was clearly not the case despite her advanced years. Miss Bridgerton, he suspected, had a number of options in her life, of which he was only one. Mm-hmm. And they do spend the better part of the afternoon together. And Philip is convinced Eloise will make a fantastic wife. 
The biggest reason is because she is a happy person. Marina was really never happy, especially after the birth of the twins. And as Philip walks upstairs to join Eloise for dinner, he finds her in the hallway outside of her room, covered in flour. The twins have been up to mischief. Philip is mortified, but also a little amused at Eloise's expression and how she takes it, because she takes it like a sport, although she is ready to murder the twins, and he can't really blame her. So he offers to punish them, but Eloise tells him that she will see to it. Quote, Philip had never thought the day would come when he'd be frightened by a woman, but as God is his witness, Eloise Bridgerton scared the living wits out of him. The look in her eyes was positively diabolical. An hour later, they are both downstairs eating when they hear Amanda let out a blood-curdling scream. (laughs) Eloise put a fish in her bed. And she didn't do anything to Oliver because she's planning to let him stew in suspense. So she left his bed untouched. And they do that evening have a brief argument over raising children. Eloise is very blunt in her opinion that children need love. And Philip is upset because how dare she tell him how to raise his children. But clearly he needed help. Otherwise, he would not have asked her there in the first place. And internally, Philip does know that he needs help with the kids. But he's a man and... Men, or really most people, hate being told that they're doing something wrong even when they know it. Yes. Amanda eventually comes careening in to tell her father that Miss Bridgerton is mean and needs to leave immediately. (laughs) Philip backs up Eloise, however, and in fact feels rather pleased with himself for how he handled the situation. Quote, Philip turned back to his soup, feeling very pleased with himself. He couldn't remember the last time he'd emerged from a run-in with one of the twins in which he'd felt he'd handled everything just right. It turns out Eloise is turning into Philip's dream girl. Quote, she was, he was coming to realize, exactly what he needed. Smart, opinionated, bossy. They weren't the sort of things men usually looked for in a wife, but Philip so desperately needed someone to come to Romney Hall and fix things. She's his very own Mary Poppins. She really is. (laughs) Yeah. And Philip does realize, though, that this is Eloise's choice, so he must find a way to make sure she wishes to stay. And after dinner, Philip shows her around the gallery, and Eloise is seeing that Philip might just be good husband material. While he's not the chattiest of men, he is funny, and he has a good sense of fair play. She is also learning that the mantle he has had to bear was not meant to be his. His older brother died, and then shortly after his father. So he took up the role of baronet and married the woman who was supposed to have married his brother. And while they're discussing all these in the gallery, Eloise also tells him about the death of her father, saying she can really feel compassion for the twins because she also lost a parent as a young child. And next, they head out to the greenhouse, where Eloise is admiring the plants and learning about what Sir Philip does with his peas, and then the mood changes. And Philip, who is a gentleman as always, asks if he can kiss her. And oh, it was such a cute scene. It was really (laughs) cute. cute. (laughs) And Eloise nods, and it is an electric kiss. And eventually she breaks away as he begins kissing her collarbone and starts talking. Nervous talking, but talking, so, quote, he kissed her again. Sir Philip! Sometimes, he said with a satisfied smile, silence is a good thing. 
<laughs> he's teasing and it's it's really very cute because <laughs> he does get a good laugh out of teasing Eloise when she's being all chatty Kathy. Oh, so cute. <laughs> yeah. The next morning, Eloise is reminiscing over the kiss. It was not her first kiss, but it definitely made more of an impression on her than others. As she's lost in thought, she goes down the hall only to be felled by a tripwire set by the twins. Mm. And she goes down hard. She doesn't even have a chance to break her fall. And it hurts. It really hurts. Eloise manages to crawl over to the wall and fight back the tears. Philip, who is just coming up the stairs, sees her and is appropriately concerned. He asks what happens, but he sees the twine strung across the hall and he knows and he is livid. So he helps Eloise to bed, telling the maid to bring something for her face as she is now sporting a pretty fantastic bruise. He shouts that someone better bring the twins immediately. Eloise tries to calm his anger. They are just children and she was hurt, but he shouldn't worry. And he will have none of that in her attempts to mitigate the anger. And Eloise looks at him and sees, quote, the look of self-loathing on his face, the bleakness in his eyes. It was self-loathing. He didn't blame his children. He blamed himself. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh, I know. Oh, he breaks my heart sometimes. Ugh. The twins come and are punished outside the room. And she is alarmed, though, because while Sir Philip is rightfully mad, Oliver asked if Philip was going to hit them. And surely Sir Philip is not a child abuser. But they left the room and shortly come back with Amanda offering her lemon drops as compensation for her part in the prank. And Eloise, you know, wants to tell him that it's fine, but it's obvious that she needs some kind of recompense from the twins. So she instead tells Amanda to keep the lemon drops, but will require one afternoon from the children when she is feeling better because they must know Romney Hall better than anyone else. So Amanda readily agrees, and Oliver sullenly agrees. Afterwards, Sir Philip helps move Eloise out to the garden for her to rest outside, and all she wants is for him to join her. And while he would like nothing more, the feelings are making Philip uncomfortable, so instead he flees to the greenhouse. <laughs> yes, as you will find, there's a lot of fleeing to the greenhouse. <laughs> But he returns 45 minutes later because Eloise is walking around decidedly not resting. And they get into a bit of a tiff and Sir Philip leaves and doesn't see Eloise for the rest of the day. So instead, he reflects upon his life and is aware how Eloise is influencing this reflection. And he wants to be better. Eloise the next morning is regretting having a tray in her room the night before and has also had time for reflection. She realizes that while they may have argued the day before, Philip is a good man. Quote, When Sir Philip looked at her and smiled, there was an air of shyness to it, as if he wasn't quite used to smiling at women. And she was left with the feeling that he was a man who, if all the pieces of their puzzle fell together in just the right way, might someday come to treasure her. Even if he never loved her, he would value her and not take her for granted. So with this in mind, she goes in search of the twins because even though they promised an afternoon, a morning will work just as well. And so Eloise invites them to go swimming at the lake, which they are eager to do, although Nurse Edwards is very upset by the change in routine. Eloise, however, convinces the nurse to leave after promising to help them with sums along the way. And it turns out that the children really dislike Nurse Edwards. They much preferred their old nurse, Nurse Millsby. Eloise can see that she is a stern nurse, but many nurses are. 
So she takes the children to the lake, and they do practice sums along the way, as Eloise promised, and in general are having a jolly good time splashing around in the water and being silly. Eloise is being a, don't go too far. (laughs) She's being a good mama to be. And all of a sudden, Philip comes charging to the lake, demanding they all get out immediately. And Eloise is very confused by this outburst when she when Philip confronts them, because she says it only wouldn't be safe if Eloise couldn't swim. And Philip says, I don't care if you can swim, he bit off. I only care that my children can't. And Eloise tells him that he is incorrect because the children can swim very well. Hadn't he taught them? And then Philip has a huge internal crisis over this fact. Quote, His children were growing and changing, and he didn't know them. He saw them. He recognized them. But he didn't know who they were. And at first, Philip is very concerned because Eloise is in wet clothes, but she's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, you're obviously going through something. Like, do you want to talk? And Philip just can't. So he takes the rest of the day to think over everything. and. Eloise is worried she's not going to see him at dinner. However, he does appear. And at dinner, Philip tells Eloise the true circumstances of Marina's death and why he overreacted to them being at the lake. And he tells her how helpless he felt watching her die of fever days later. And Eloise says she understands because she was the sole witness to her father's death, which is something she has never really spoken about with anyone. And she also reminds Philip that there is still time to get to know his children, and they can plan a future outing at a different lake, maybe one with less memories, where they can go. And suddenly, there is a commotion, and not one of the children's making. Quote, A forceful stream of invective was followed by a yelp from the butler, and then Eloise knew. Oh, dear God, she said, her grip on her spoon growing slack until her soup dribbled off, splashing back into the bowl. The Bridgerton brothers have arrived. All of them. And they are not pleased. All four. four. And they are not pleased. (laughs) Philip is reassessing his decision to court a woman with brothers. He he really should have taken that into more consideration (laughs) when she told him about them. And Eloise is pleading with them to release Philip, who is currently pushed up against the wall in a stranglehold. And is trying to appeal to each brother when finally she gives up on logic and jumps into the fray herself. Quote, stop, Eloise yelled, hurling herself onto Benedict's back and yanking his hair. Benedict howled as his head jerked backwards. But unfortunately, Anthony's strangulatory grip held firm, even as Benedict was forced to let go to fight off Eloise, who was, Philip noted as well as he could, given his lack of oxygen, fighting like a fury, crossed with a banshee, crossed with Medusa herself. Yes, go Eloise. But unfortunately, then Anthony notes her black eye and is all like, hell no, you hit her. And then Eloise is like, what I actually actually defend someone who hit me. (laughs) And finally, logic is reaching the brains of the Bridgerton men. And finally, Philip is released from the wall. And talking can commence. But first, Eloise tells Gregory off because he's a baby and she does not need protection (laughs) from a child. Which is a really great passage because while she's telling off Gregory, Philip is just sitting there, like, trying to think of his name. He's like, he's younger, so he must be the G. <laughs> is it Gary? Is it... What is it? He's like, oh, right, Gregory. Gregory. So good. <laughs> oh. Yes. 
So finally, there is a moment of introduction before Anthony and Eloise go to speak in another room. Quote, she shot him an apologetic look, which Philip thought was really the least she could do after nearly getting him tortured and killed, then turned to her brothers and motioned to each in turn, saying, Anthony, Benedict, Colin, Gregory, these three, she added, motioning to A, B, and C, are my elders. This one, she waved dismissively at Gregory, is an infant. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Eloise and Anthony go off to speak, and Philip is left with the remaining brothers. Colin, of course, immediately starts eating the remaining dinner that's sitting at the mm -hmm. table. And all three keep sending him various murderous looks. So eventually Philip's over it and tells them if they plan to break his legs, they might as well get it over with. And in the other room, Anthony is giving Eloise no choice but to marry Philip, which Eloise, despite having run away to assess his suitability to marriage, is resisting. However, unless she can give her brother one valid reason why she should not marry Philip, she will. And breaking down a little, Eloise tells him that she just wants a love match like her brothers have. And Anthony reminds her that his marriage did not start as a love match. She also explains what made her run away, how she felt like she was waiting for life to happen and she could just not stand it. Quote, no, let me finish, he said. You're one of the special ones, Eloise. Life never happens to you. Trust me on this. I've watched you grow up, had to be your father at times when I only wanted to be your brother. You happen to life, Eloise, Anthony said. You've always made your own decisions, always been in control. It might not always feel that way, but it's true. Ugh, I'm not going to lie. When I was rewriting this quote, I like got a little choked up. Oh, I was like, oh, it was I love very it. good, very good brothering. Yes. And Anthony gives a little bit saying they will all return her and her brothers to my cottage, Benedict's house, for anyone who doesn't remember. And she can have a week, maybe two max, max, to get to know Philip a little better. He can, or more specifically, will, <laughs> visit every day. However, unless something comes up to prove his unsuitability, Eloise would marry him at the end of this time. Which is fair. That is the norm in the time period. Yes. It's very lenient for the time period, shall we say. <laughs> so they return to the dining room and find her other three brothers, as well as Sir Philip, are currently quite drunk. And they're talking about the local barmaid with her gigantic tits. <laughs> <laughs> and Eloise is aghast, but the brothers persist, asking if Sir Philip ever tried to go with her. And he answers perfectly. Quote, but Philip just shook his head. She's married, he said, as was I. Anthony turned to Eloise and whispered in her ear, he'll do. <laughs> <laughs> and Eloise is also wondering, what the hell happened? How are they all best buddies all of a sudden? Like, weren't they just trying to kill him like an hour ago? And Philip tells her he asked them to break his legs. Quote, as long as she lived, she'd never understand men. She she'd never understand men. She had four brothers and quite frankly should have understood them better than most women. And maybe it had taken all of her 28 years to come to this realization, but men were, quite simply, freaks. <laughs> After the emotional talk with Anthony and the events of the day, Eloise has had enough and demands that they take her to my cottage that instant. So reluctantly, the brothers leave with Eloise. The next day at my cottage, Eloise finds a sympathetic ear in Sophie, who is appalled by the brothers on Eloise's behalf. 
However, she does tell Eloise to be kind to Sir Philip. He did not force the situation on her, and she cannot become bitter towards him, especially if they're to make a marriage work. Sir Philip arrives with flowers and a hangover. Turns out Benedict and Gregory are also suffering thus. Lucky Colin never seems to get hungover, and Anthony didn't drink that much. (laughs) So Sophie goes to fetch some lemonade for Philip, and Eloise and he have a little time alone, which they use to bicker. Philip tells her that of course they should marry. It's inevitable, and his children need a mother. And Eloise is upset and uncharitable because it is obviously not what she wanted to hear. However, this does not last long. Philip knows how to push Eloise just enough to make her realize that she is being uncharitable, so she does apologize. And he also makes amends by telling her that while the timeline was sped up by her brothers, he's not sorry about it. He had already decided that they would suit. The brothers then come to join them with an enormous platter of food. Colin is present after all. (laughs) And Anthony tells him they look well. Only the best couples bicker, you know. However, with all this family around and then the letter Anthony gives Eloise from her mother, Philip knows he must do something. So he takes Eloise away and into what turns out to be Sophie's writing room. This, he says, is to ease her fears about their suitability. And they have encounter number one, which is a heavy makeout and a clever use of fingers. It was a suitable demonstration of suitability. Afterwards, Philip leaves Eloise in the writing room to compose herself and perhaps read the letter. As he returns to the garden, he sees all four brothers are setting up a shooting match. They invite him to join and all take turns hurrying so they can get to round two before Eloise returns. Philip puts in a good shot with only Gregory shooting an equal round, and they are about to start round two when Eloise comes barreling towards them, yelling, Wait! All of the brothers groan because it turns out that Eloise is a crack shot, dead center, with barely any effort. And Philip is actually impressed and voices his pleasure at finding out this fact, because he is also quite a good shot. Eloise's brothers, however, are not as excited and put in half-hearted efforts for the remaining rounds. They do this every time, Eloise said to Philip. They shoot badly until I decide the match isn't worth it, and then they have all the fun. Philip's next shot is perfect, and Eloise is giddy with excitement. Anthony tells Philip he needs to marry her now, if only so that he can shoot with her and she'll leave them alone. Aw. The next day, the Bridgertons, minus Colin and Gregory, come to Ramsey Hall for lunch. They get to meet Oliver and Amanda in unfortunate circumstances, but luckily the Bridgertons are sympathetic and know how hard the death of a parent can be on children. And after lunch and a tour of the greenhouse, Eloise and Philip have time to talk. Philip tells her that he never had a parent to emulate, and Eloise tells him the whole story of why she left London abruptly, and they part ways with a new understanding of the other. Four days later, they get married! And there is a great moment with Violet Bridgerton where she asks if Eloise needs to have the wedding night talk, and Eloise tells her she knows enough. Violet is happy to hear that since she knows she did a shit job when it was Daphne's turn. Which, oh, uh, yes. I think these, see, these are these moments where you're like, yes, Violet and Anthony, how they're so redeemed, like from their bad. Anyhow, Mm -hmm. it's just also, yeah, we didn't like them book one. And then it was like, oh, wait, you're great. We like you. Yes. Why did I have this wonderful memory? And yeah, these kind of like, you know, moments of, of admitting things like that. It's just, it's great. Yes. And Violet also tells Eloise that she's happy she never chose any of those other men. 
Eloise has never settled for anything less than what she actually deserved. And then we have the wedding night, which is briefly interrupted when Philip undresses and Eloise sees the whip scars on his back. Turns out it was from his own father, who believed in corporal punishment and used it frequently. And Eloise is horrified, but also just so sorry that Philip had to go through that. And then we get back to the action. <laughs> and we have encounter number two, which is fairly normal sex, but poor Philip hasn't gotten any in eight years. And damn, he really had some self-control because he got Eloise off first. Good job, buddy. <laughs> and a week into the marriage, things are going well. At least in the bedroom. Who knew a man could kiss you there? However, there is still the kind of connection that Eloise is really hoping for from their marriage. Her mother has advised her not to push Philip, but of course that is very hard for Eloise. She's not a sit-there-and-do-nothing kind of woman. That being said, while she has told herself not to interfere with Philip, she can still do stuff with the kids. So she goes off to the nursery, only to find Oliver and Amanda in a state of near tears. She demands to know what's going on, but Nurse Edwards insists that she just wrapped their knuckles for disrespectful speech. And Eloise is not a fan of this. She's not a fan of corporal punishment in any form, but she does know it's used in most schools, so it's not an unreasonable punishment. However, she makes it clear that Nurse Edwards should do so softer the next time. The nurse disagrees, but Eloise insists, and then she also tells the woman she can have the rest of the morning off. And Nurse Edwards doesn't want to do that, but Eloise is like, no, leave. Go away. So luckily she does, and Eloise is alone with the children, and they are so happy to be free of that woman. And Eloise begins thinking that maybe she needs to speak with Philip. Something fishy is going on. So later, Eloise does find Philip in the greenhouse because she wanted to discuss her concerns. And Philip has been in such a happy mood with his new marriage and really has only one thing on his mind. So he kind of dismisses her concerns since he's never found fault with Nurse Edwards. And after all, he married her to look after the children. And also, he just has trouble keeping his hands off of her. But Eloise is annoyed because really it is not the time for a sexy encounter. She is there for a serious conversation, and he better not have just married her to be a mother and have sex with her. The whole thing blows up, as they often do when one person is focused on sex and the other is focused on topics, you know, in the relationship. After an hour of pondering how the conversation went wrong, Eloise decides to go to my cottage to visit with Sophie. And when Philip finally gets back in the house, he finds that Eloise is gone. And at first, Philip is very concerned, but then the butler lets him know that she did not take a bag with her. So with this little reassurance, Philip decides to go up to see his children, since Eloise has been insisting he spend more time with them. And as he walks in, he sees Nurse Edwards hitting Amanda on her back with a large, heavy book. Philip is outraged. No one is allowed to hit his children. Nurse Edwards tries to defend herself, but Philip tells her she better be out of the house in 30 minutes or else. She tells him that he is ruining his children. They are mine to ruin. He barks at her to leave that instant, and she finally flees. He faces his children, terrified by what he will see, but they throw themselves at him like he's a hero. Quote, his arms went around his children, tightly, protectively. Shh, he crooned. It's all right. I'm here now. 
They were words he'd never said, words he'd never imagined saying. He'd never thought that his presence might be one to make everything all right. I'm sorry, he choked out. I'm so sorry. So Philip finally realizes that while he tried to stay away from his children in an effort not to be like his father, he had actually failed his children by doing this. And he tells them how much he loves them, and he vows to himself that he will be there for them always. However, later that evening, Eloise has still not returned, so Philip decides to take action and goes to Benedict's house to fetch his wife back. She could not have left him. When he arrives, he finds that Eloise has stayed longer than expected because her nephew Charles is sick with a really bad fever, and he has been like that for days. Everyone is beside themselves, hoping the fever will break, and so far doctors have given them nothing that actually helps. And Philip, trying to be helpful, says that he knows that willow bark tea can often help reduce fevers, and so he helps make a preparation for Charles, and they stay at my cottage throughout the night. In the morning, it looks like Charles's fever has broken, and of course, Sophie and Benedict are just so relieved because they've been up all night worrying. And with this, Philip and Eloise head home. And on the way, Philip tells Eloise about Nurse Edwards and tells her more about his father. And Eloise also tells him that she hates feeling helpless like she did when she watched her father die. And then they just sit with each other for comfort. It's a first for both of them. When they finally get back to Ramsey Hall, Philip tells Eloise to go up and nap and he will be up there shortly. He just needs to hug his children for a minute. However, when Eloise awakens, Philip has not been to bed. She finds him in the gallery staring up at Marina's portrait. And when Philip speaks, he tells Eloise that even in their short marriage, it has been heaven for him. Eloise has to be happy, to stay happy, because he has no idea what he will do otherwise. This is why her departure the day before was such a blow to him. And Eloise tells him that she is happy, more than she ever dreamed possible. And I love yous are shared in a raw moment of vulnerability. Then they head up to the bedroom where it continues, quote, I'm so lucky, he said, and his hands moved, sliding down her ribcage over her belly and around to her backside. I think I've waited my entire life for you. I know I've been waiting for you, Eloise said. And we have encounter number three. The next week is pure bliss for both of them, including the children. They have become a family in truth, even going on shopping excursions together. That evening at dinner, Eloise finds a note under her plate that leads her on a walk through the house, finally to her husband in the bedroom, where there's a big I love you written in rose petals. He tells her how the twins told him it had been the best day ever, and at first he agreed with them, but then he realized they were wrong. Quote, I couldn't choose a day, he confessed. Any day with you, Eloise. Any day with you. He touched her chin, brought his lips to hers. Any week, he murmured. Any month, any hour, he kissed her then softly, but with all the love in his soul. Any moment, he whispered, as long as I'm with you. Aww. And then we have an epilogue, which the epilogue is a note written by Eloise to her first biological daughter with a really wonderful line that includes, quote, laugh, laugh out loud and laugh often. And when circumstances call for silence, turn your laugh into a smile. Oh, oh my gosh, Kelsey, what a what a story. And I'm feeling a little verklempt, so shall we adjourn to the parlor?
We shall. I want to remind folks that now is a great time to join our email list. Our email subscribers get to know what we're reading for the whole next month ahead of time. And this April's email is heading out shortly. But if you sign up after it's already been sent out, the confirmation email always includes a link to the most recent update, so you can click on that and still learn what we'll be reading. So head on over to romancepod.com contact to sign up. And if you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at T is in Tom and is in Nancy Strumpets. We're on Facebook and Pinterest slash T is in Tom and is in Nancy Strumpets. And we're also on YouTube. You just have to search the title of our show. All right. So I think we're moving into our general thoughts. We are. I really liked it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's it's funny because I kind of had forgotten it and like I knew I liked Eloise, but I kind of forgotten this book a bit. And then I read it and I was like, oh man, it's so good. Yeah, it's really weird because I feel like it kind of maybe doesn't get the like, I don't know, the the recognition that maybe the first four books get, but it's so good. I love this book. And it, I remember when I first read it that I was upset because I was like, this is not at all who I thought Eloise should be with. <laughs> and like, right? right? And, but he's like so perfect for her. Like, <laughs> he really is. And I love it because even in her dialogue, like you can feel like we had one of the quotes in there included where it's like, he's a bit shy. He's a bit awkward. And that's kind of great because Eloise is just this like force of nature and he can really be himself with her, but like he can still be shy and kind of quirky and like, you know, the eccentric botanist he is. And he just can like tag along with Eloise for the ride. And that's okay. Yes, I totally agree. I there are a little bit of the opposites attract thing. And I I'm surprised we didn't put that in the tropes. What were we thinking? I know, right? What, what were we thinking? Uh, but yeah, it, they definitely have like such a great chemistry and I really love them. I think this is a really smart book by Julia Quinn. I think she did something unexpected here with Eloise's character. I think that's why like when I first read it, I was like, what? This is so not what I expected, you know? Yeah. And yet she makes you just absolutely fall in love with the whole story. And it it's got all these tropes, right? It's got the widower with the children that are wild. And yet you just yeah. like, it, you know, and the kids do the, the, the typical pranks, you know, the, the bucket of flour, the trip wire, the fish in the bed, you know, but yeah. it is so, it's so great. It's perfect. Like I just, uh, I love so much. It really <laughs> is. And like, it's funny because in the twins and this, you know, it was kind of hard to put into the synopsis, but like you get this great thing where like Amanda's like, kind of willing to warm up to Eloise and Oliver's mm -hmm. like, no, I refuse, you know? And there's all these cute little moments with the kids where they're kind of starting to like her, but they don't really like her yet. But 
It's something new. They're kids. They're, they're new and they're afraid because, you know, they've had this kind of black cloud over their house for most of their lives. And although the cloud has lifted, there's still like a new sadness that comes with that, you know? Yeah. It sounds like, and we, you know, we didn't get too deep into the synopsis with this, but from, from what we learn about Marina's character, it sounds like she was always struggling with depression and melancholy in her life, yes. even as a child. Mm-hmm. She wasn't playful. She didn't laugh. And so that's really hard and that's really sad. And I really do, from the descriptions in the book, but I believe that she had postpartum depression. But I really believe that what Julia Quinn was trying to describe to us was a complex person who struggled with depression and who didn't have who didn't have the resources available to her that people of our time do, and then also had postpartum depression. And when I was listing off the symptoms, uh, sorry, or not the symptoms, but the, the things that made you more likely to have postpartum depression, one of those was a history of depression, right? And so Mm -hmm. people who are depressed are more, more likely to also have postpartum depression. And so I think that for Marina, although she as a character is described as loving her children, she had postpartum depression. And that is something that is really important to distinguish with postpartum depression. It's not that you don't love the children. You have depression that is brought on by all of the things that are associated with having a child. But that doesn't mean you don't love the child. And so I feel like for these kids, you know, they've had, they've heard Marina crying. It's so sad. It's so hard for them to open up to something new. Yes. Because they're just adjusting to what they have. Yes. And like Philip married her, they got pregnant really early. And then Marina like went into a really big spiral after the kids were born. And so the kids kind of grew up tiptoeing around the house. And then Philip was so worried about being his father that he really tried to keep his distance from the children, not because he didn't love them, but because he was trying to protect them from himself and what he could do. Because he's like, I got so angry at them once, like I was actually afraid I would hit them. And I don't want to be that person. They were all products of their circumstances. And that's why Philip needed someone like Eloise in his life who had completely different circumstances, who could tell him things were okay to be a different way or to trust himself. He needed a woman who was assured and who was outspoken and bossy and all those wonderful things yes. that she is. And it's just, it really, it's so, it's so great. And yeah. So I, I also like really was happy to reread this book. It put a smile on my face when you asked what my favorite reread of, or when I asked you what your favorite reread of this, you know, year so far had been, I almost wanted to say this one, but I still stand by my Earl I Ruined. <laughs> I will say this was a I was also like this was probably one of a top reread for me as well because it was it wasn't even like reading Benedict's was like Benedict's I didn't really remember Mm -hmm. and it was a good story and everything like that but this one I felt was a little bit more heartwarming in that sense and then even when I was writing the synopsis like I was like oh my gosh this part it's like I almost found myself reading it again because it's like oh no what's happening it's so cute so I, I thought up an interesting comparison that I wanted to bring up with this book I feel like this book parallels a lot to Chasing Cassandra, and let me explain why. So I feel like, you know, Eloise and Philip have a long courtship, if you think about it. For one Mm -hmm. year, they exchange letters. Cassandra and Tom, 
we see them meet over a course of months, if not close to a year in their book. Yeah. Then Mm -hmm. there is an unfortunate circumstance that causes them to have to get married, which also happens in Eloise's book. And in Cassandra's, maybe it's a little bit stronger, but in Eloise's book, right, her brothers come in and are like, "Uh uh-uh, lady, this ain't gonna fly. (laughs) You know, you are going to have to marry this guy. Um. And so, but she also decides that that's what she wants to do. Both ladies do end up making that decision. It isn't like we have, mm-hmm. to, you know, it's not a terrible decision. Uh, there's also children in both books. There's Basil in the other book and there's, yes. you know, the twins here and they kind of play heavily into the storylines. And mm-hmm. then there's also a good period of the book where it is their marriage and them adjusting to their married life. Yes. So I just wanted to point this out because I feel like, this book does all of those things so much better than Chasing Cassandra does. And I know a lot of people, you know, maybe I haven't heard from listeners. If you guys really disagreed with us, I've heard from a couple that disagreed but didn't think we were too terrible. (laughs) But maybe you guys think (laughs) we were totally off of our rockers because I keep seeing a lot of people talk about how amazing Chasing Cassandra was. And I just feel so differently. I think it was fine. I just don't feel like it was amazing. And I feel like this book was amazing. And yes, they are two different books. They are two different sets of characters. But I will say Sandra is, you know, more outgoing and Tom is this kind of reserved, right? And then we have Eloise, who's very outgoing, and Philip, who's this, you know, reserved botanist who doesn't really understand feelings, although he does come, (laughs) they both then come around to understanding feelings. And all of these tropes we see a lot, but I feel like this book does takes each of those plot elements and does them at like a 10. You know, rather than Mm -hmm. Cassandra, where I felt like things felt a little weaker or a little forced. So I don't know. How do you feel about my comparison? I think, I mean, I get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I I hear the comparison. And I do agree. I I do like this one better. (laughs) I like this one better than Chasing Cassandra. I'm sorry. It's just the fact. Which, like, I liked Chasing Cassandra. Tom Severin's character was great. So good. I like his character. He's such a good character. No arguments there. (laughs) No arguments there. I think what, though, really drove this plot was the fact that Eloise and Philip were both fully formed versus mm-hmm. what you and I had discussed about, which was, I know, my biggest letdown with Chasing Cassandra was I just didn't feel like Cassandra was fully formed. Yeah, that's fair. Versus Eloise was fully formed, Philip was fully formed, and they had to learn how to create a marriage between them as fully formed people who did care about the other one. Yes. So I think that's why this book felt more amazing to us was because like we knew who Eloise was, we knew who Philip was, and we really understood who they were. Even with Philip being a new character that we hadn't seen before, we knew who he was. And I feel like we would be quite remiss if we did not mention that, of course, Eloise doesn't get to know in this book that her best friend Penelope is Lady Whistledown oh no Eloise doesn't know any of that yet guys not even (laughs) at her wedding which I assume Penelope's there actually in the second epilogue is there something about it so in Penelope's second epilogue it talks about how Penelope and Colin go to Eloise's wedding and then Eloise and Penelope talk about the fact that she's Whistledown Okay, so it does happen so, like, at her wedding, it but it does, does happen, happen at her wedding, <laughs> but it does not happen in this book. So, like, I think that was Julia Quinn being like, 
hang on, Eloise did find out because you never got Eloise's reaction. So even though it was a second epilogue for Penelope and Colin, I think it was more like a here's the scene you've all been here's waiting the for scene all the guys time. that no one got because <laughs> we needed to find out what happened when Eloise found out. I know, I know. So that is like that was a letdown for me when I read this book the first time. I remember just being like, "How could she not know?" But I mean, <laughs> Julia Quinn wrote about it in in the notes of this book, and she said, "You know, there was an opportunity for the brothers to tell her, but she felt like the brothers were being snarky and didn't want to tell Eloise anything right now. <laughs> they were I mad don't at think her. They did either. I think they were <laughs> mad at her, and I think they were too busy trying to size up Philip. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I actually think it was a good decision it it didn't because this book feels very much like its own story rather you know and I love that about it 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 is very cool that like Eloise is taken away from London and there's this like this love story is happening in like a little capsule to the side and I love that feeling and then you get as a reader yeah and then you get the Bridgerton family added into Mm -hmm. it but it doesn't take away from like it's encapsulated and like they're in a bubble like, yeah. And that's what they're meant to be. They're meant to be in a bubble. Yeah, because they have been corresponding for such a long time, they need to have some time to, like, actually be with each other and see if this is going to work. All right. Anyhow, uh, maybe we should get into our ratings. Yes. So, Zoe, what did you think of Sir Philip? I really like Sir Philip. I really don't like find Sir Philip Crane to be a sexy name even like a little bit like yeah, it's funny you say that though because in my head I'm just like oh Philip like <laughs> like it's it's funny but I also just like it that she constantly calls him Sir Philip and then at one point he's like I think we can dispense with the sir <laughs> <laughs> it's very cute yeah no um but I really like him he is an interesting character I like that he is you know a, a man of fewer words he's the kind of person but it's not that he can't speak it's that he is he internalizes and he reflects um kind of on his own own before he's ready to talk about things. And there are lots of people like that. I am not one of those people. My <laughs> husband is one of those people, you know? So, yes. <laughs> so I feel like I really like, I love seeing a hero depicted that way. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, it's just that different character traits and they're celebrated. And I, I like that about him. He's also like, ugh. What a father. I mean, I know he failed for like eight years, but like, I forgive it him. Like, it, I do too. I really liked him as well. I felt that, like you said, he could internalize. And sometimes he just like would have the dialogue in his head. It's like, well, I could do this or I could do that. And then he's just like, you know, what? nope, it's not necessary. And that was kind of his thing with his kids. It's like he wanted to do this and he wanted to do this, but he just like would talk himself out of it. Yeah. And he didn't fail. I don't want to say he failed. He just like didn't do a great job for a while. But it wasn't such a terrible situation that he wasn't able to make something great out of it. No. And it was all from a place like he literally thought it was better for his kids if he had minimal contact. Like, it was just what he thought. And he was, but he wasn't afraid to talk. And then I liked it, too, because when they're together and Eloise is even when they're bickering, he's just like, you don't need to talk so much. She's (laughs) like, are you saying I talk a lot? He's like, yes, I am saying you talk a lot, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And it's just cute because he like he just he says these things, but they're not malicious. It's it's teasing. He's just like, 
Gosh, but it's funny. I laugh because my husband says the same thing to me. He'll <laughs> he'll joke with me and he'll be like, "Hey, babe, have you reached your word count for the day?" <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh, because he'll just cute. hear me talking, and it's just you know, that's just how it is. <laughs> Aww. So, but it's just teacher teasing. It's good natured teasing, and you know, I get it. It's very cute. Well, yeah. So I'm gonna give. Sir Philip, a nine. I think he's really great. I like him very much. I'm going to agree with that assessment. Like, he's really high on that list. I agree. He's not like sexy, sexy, but he feels like a real person to me. Yeah, I really I just I love him. I love I love his arc. Like, it's a great arc. And He's not too stubborn in moments where he needs to come around. He's mm-hmm. rational. I love that. Anyhow, so now Eloise. Eloise is fab because she's aware of her flaws. Like mm-hmm. she's aware she's stubborn. She's aware she talks too much. She's aware that she she's aware that she's loud and that she just can't help herself. But she yes. also doesn't settle. You know, like she set out because she wanted a love match like her brothers and sisters did, which is why she turned down six people. She wants it, and so that's what she's going to set out and get. And then making this decision, yes, it was a rash decision, and she's like, this is kind of a dumb idea, but I've already made my decision, so I'm sticking with it. Yeah. And her love of the kids, like, even when they were torturing her, she's like, I love it, too, because she even tells Philip, she's like, no, they're monsters, but don't worry, I won't harm them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, she and she recognizes pretty early on, even though she's always been the crazy, like, rebellious one, like, she's like, these kids need me. Yeah. No, it's great. Yeah. So what would you give her? I might give her a 10. I love her. I thought you would. (laughs) And I think that that's a a really acceptable rating. I think Eloise is fabulous too. It's funny because I don't feel such an affinity for her until this book. In the other books, I like – I'm interested in her Mm -hmm. um, or I'm kind of angry at her. Like I don't necessarily love her so much in Penelope's book, but that's on purpose, right? She's going through something and you don't realize that until you get to this book. So that's really great character development. Mm -hmm. Um, But overall, I think Eloise is fabulous too. She's got great lines in this book. She's funny. She's fierce. Um, I think she's a nine. I really love her. Yeah. She's so great. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. The favorite quotes, guys. <sighs> it's hard because there's a lot of good ones, but I did find one. Uh, and it's a little bit more of a kind of sweet one rather than a funny one. Shall I go first? Yes, you shall go first. All right. So this is uh, a moment where Eloise is speaking with Philip after her brothers have shown up. And she's kind of just like explaining everything to him. And it says, quote, She told him all that and more. She told him what was in her mind and what was in her heart, and she told him things she'd never told another soul. And it occurred to her that for a woman who opened her mouth every other second, there was an awful lot inside of her that she'd never shared. Ugh, and I just, I can relate to that as someone who does talk a lot and does say a lot of things. There are sometimes a lot of things that I haven't shared necessarily. Yes. A hundred percent. Until you find that person that you want to share them with. Yeah, exactly. And it's a really great one. There's so many good ones. However, I've, okay, technically there are three, there's three, but they're like one-liners. You should say them all. (laughs) They're like one-liners. So this is also when 
the Bridgerton brothers have shown up. And they're trying to explain what happened to Eloise's eye. And she's trying not to be mean to the children, you know. And then Philip's just like, just tell him. Like, just tell the truth. It's fine. And Anthony's like, you've got children? He's like, yes, twins. And my felicitations, Anthony murmured. Thank you, Philip answered, feeling rather old and weary in that moment. Sympathies are probably more to the point. <laughs> Anthony looked at him curiously, almost, but not quite smiling. Aw. I know. It's like when they first meet, they can't all help but, like, like each other. Exactly. <laughs> no, and even Anthony's like, as soon as he finds it, he's like, oh, you're a father. And he's like, eh, you're not so bad. And then um, the next one is from the same basic scene and philip decided that he needed to learn how to glare like anthony bridgerton he'd have his children in line in no time Ooh, <laughs> anthony yeah. does have that glare oh he's had many years of practicing being the head of a family yes and then the last one is um eloise is reflecting about something her mother had said when this is she's like my mom told me not to push i'm trying not to push and her mother had told her that she could catch more flies with honey than a sledgehammer. But Eloise never could learn to keep her thoughts to herself. Ha, ah, Eloise, I feel you, girl. <laughs> and I just, I love the representation, though, because it's like, honey, sledgehammer. And that's kind of how Eloise comes across, because she's so, like, she has a lot of opinions, and she's not afraid to share them. They do sometimes come out like a sledgehammer. <laughs> and that's why Philip is say. like... What do you he's like, excuse me? And she's like, that's not what I mean. I mean, it is what I mean, but like ugh. Seriously. Yes. Well, uh And there's many, many more, guys. Many, many more. Yes. I was highlighting more as I was doing the synopsis, because I was going through the book and I had my notes and I had all my like highlights, and then I was highlighting more and I had to tell myself to stop it because <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't read the whole book as a favorite quote. Sadly, that is the case. All right, so now our steaminess rating and our encounter counter. All right, our steaminess rating, I would say it's a good cup of tea. I would say, yeah, it is a, a good cup of tea. This is not particularly inventive, but also like, ugh, it does everything for me. I get all the butterflies. Oh, like, yes. I love their chemistry. Exactly. And there is plenty of it, you know. The first night there, Philip's like, can I kiss you? Because all oh. of a sudden he's like, ooh, oh. who's that girl in this greenhouse? Yeah, it's there's a lot of chemistry. And how many encounters did we have in this one? We had three. Yes, which is a lot more than last book, right? Last book was uh, Penelope and Colin, and I think we had one, maybe two. Yeah. It was like one, maybe two, and it was very sweet. Um, mm -hmm. But this one got like, this one is like 10 levels above the last book as far as the like steaminess, but yes. it's still not like super steamy. <laughs> no, no, no. But I think that's fair. I think that's when I read a Julia Quinn book, I'm not there because it's going to be scandalous and like no. on fire. I'm there because the relationship mm -hmm. is the steam factor for me. Like, and, and the great dialogue. <laughs> oh, well, the great dialogue is just a given. But yes. like, for me, that whole relationship and the coming together, that's what I'm going to get out of it. It's not just for the scenes. It's more the everything. For sure. So feminist recap, supporter, neutral offender is what we say. And I have to say that this one 
you know, especially coming back around to Violet saying, you know, I didn't do a good job with Daphne. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this one's a strong supporter. Eloise is such a feminist icon, right? <laughs> she is. And Speaking I would her think mind. so too, because even... Once again, something that could not be in the synopsis, but just a great aside, because all the guys were talking about the barmaid with the huge breasts. And Sophie's like, oh, I know her. Posey decided to ask her about what it's like to have huge breasts once, because Posey just can't help herself. And apparently the woman's like a member of Posey's church. So Posey's made friends with her. So it's this woman that all the men lust after. And yet Posey's like... I'm going to talk to her. She's a nice person. That and also Sophie's like, oh, gosh, her poor back. Like, you know, she's thinking, oh, it's so cute. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I think this one's a supporter. I think that there's just – there's one moment that I thought maybe wasn't the most sensitive, and I don't necessarily think that this falls under feminism, but it has to do with the line that we quoted in the beginning, which was about Philip seeing Eloise's eyes for the first time. And it says, you know, that Philip thought he could drown in her eyes and he didn't take the word drown very lightly. Mm-hmm. When I read that, I thought that that was a very clever bit of writing. And I totally understood, like, the choice of making that in writing. Mm-hmm. But I just have an experience. I had a friend whose father had committed suicide and something that she said to me just like really stuck with me. And so she said to me, you know, like anytime that anybody said the words like, oh, I could kill myself right now, like even if Mm -hmm. it was just joking, like that really affected her. And so she would tell people like, please don't say that. It's not even funny to joke about. It's not funny to use that as a, as a, as a saying and turn a phrase. And I think that Mm -hmm. In today's world, we're kind of becoming more sensitive to things like that. Um, So when I read that, that's kind of how I read that phrase. And though I can look at it and think that it is a symbolic, metaphorical, like beautiful thing, and I can understand what the writer is doing, it's also clever. I just had this moment that I thought, you know, people who have been through this might not take it the same way. And so that's just where I had this moment where I was like, "Hmm, I don't know. I wonder. I wonder because I don't have the experience, but. Yeah, I I get that. And I do think it was I think it was a nod to the fact that so for me, the way I read it was just as he would never have even thought the word lightly in that sense that like Ellery was such a jolt to him after all the events. Like, that's kind of what I read it as. Yeah. And and so I get the whole idea of the sensitivities and the looking at it and being like, maybe that's not you know, where that should have gone. But I think it was there like intentionally for that reason. Well, and and like I said, I didn't, I I actually stopped and thought about it as I was reading it because like I explained, it kind of made me think all those things. And I, I, I was trying to find a really strong argument to say like, I wondered to myself, is there a strong argument to say that shouldn't be there? And I didn't feel that way um, because I agree with the things that you're saying too, that, that there's there's a reason that she said those things. It was symbolic and metaphoric and mm-hmm. and and I can see that. But I also just wonder if those who have had that experience may find it similarly hard to read. And I mean, that's the thing about books is you you don't know what you're going to encounter. And sometimes it's wonderful. And sometimes it can also be difficult. And sometimes the difficult books can also be wonderful and healing. So mm-hmm. anyhow, just some thoughts. Yeah, all good thoughts. So now we have our final book rating. Oof. 
Hmm. What do you think, Kelsey? I'm just going to split my difference and just call it a 9.5. I am also at a 9.5. <laughs> I I really like was was kind of like waffling between a 10 and a 9 and this one's so close to a 10 for me, but like yes. I'll admit I love romancing Mr. Bridgerton somehow. I love it differently, but maybe just slightly more. Mhm. And there are just some other books that, like, you know, feel like a 10 for me. This one isn't going to be on the top of my pile, although maybe it should be. It's such a great book. It is such a great book. It's one of those books that now that I've read it again, I think I'm going to, like, go back to more. You know, like, when I want to read a quintessential Bridgerton novel, I think this is one that's going to be at the top. I don't disagree. I I love this book. This was a great read. I mean, we're arguing over 0.5. What yeah. are we arguing over? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all righty. Well, that was fun. And I can't wait till we get to our next Bridgerton book, which is not next week. You know, we're getting into the last three books of the Bridgerton series, which we uh, have we have said we don't particularly enjoy. I know. I am although really excited to reread Francesca's book. Mm-hmm. Because I know a lot of people really like that book. Yes. And I'm also interested to see if I'll have the same feelings towards that I did towards Eloise's book. Because yeah. Because they've also like Fran- the one thing about it though, and maybe this is why it didn't stick out, is because Francesca is really only like barely mentioned. Yeah. In all the other ones. Like in Daphne's book, Francesca's not even out yet. So she's just really young. Mm-hmm. And then she marries and is off in all the others. So you really don't have a sense of her. Like, we don't have a sense of her. She's like, she wasn't even at Eloise's wedding because she couldn't get home from Scotland. So she's like really in her own little bubble. So it's going to be interesting. And maybe that's why it didn't stick with me as much because I didn't have that Bridgerton-ness that I was getting with all the others. But now I'm kind of going into it with a different mindset being like, well, do we know Francesca? Let's get to know Francesca a little bit more. And I'm really excited, actually, even though I don't have fond memories of Hyacinth or Gregory's books, it's been so long since I read them. Maybe this time around, I will like them differently. I don't know. I'm looking forward to remembering them again. So it's still going to be a while till we get there. But I just like had to talk about that because I remember loving the first five. I think I remember like being okay with Francesca's, but then mm-hmm. a feeling disappointed with, with Hyacinth and Gregory. But it's been so long. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is why it's fun to reread and talk about it. It's so <laughs> fun. But we, I, like I said, we aren't reading those next week. So what are we reading next time? Next time, we will be reading The Madness of Lord Ian Mackenzie by Jennifer Ashley. And I'm excited to read this book. I'm pretty sure that I've read it before. I think it's on my nook, but maybe not. And I don't think I have. So I'm very interested in reading it. And we chose this book because uh, April is Autism Awareness Month. And the main character of this book is not defined as having autism, but is kind of explained as having autism, shall we say. Although autism wasn't defined as a thing uh, back in that time. So very exciting. And I'm looking forward to reading that. Me too. Something new. Yes. So if you guys like what you heard today, uh, tell a friend, let someone know, share on social media or 
send us a review or a rating on iTunes or any other pod catcher that allows that. We love hearing from you guys. So thank you so much for listening and join us next time as we read The Madness of Lord Ian Mackenzie by Jennifer Ashley. And may all your ever afters end happily. Tea and Strumpets is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.